Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Bienvenido a otro podcast de la Iglesia C29 Granada. Esperamos que te inspire y te haga reflexionar. Hello everyone. Um, it's it's good to to uh, have another session uh, on this this series. And this, as Esther says, is the eighth. And I'm planning that over the next uh, two weeks we'll um, we'll have the last two. And what I want us to do during that time is to to really focus much more on issues of of lifestyle and how we think about that, particularly um, during this period of recovery and particularly into, into the years ahead when there are going to be all sorts of new changes um, related to things like climate change and so forth that we're going to have to think about and do something about. But for the moment, uh, today, our topic is tithes and offerings in God's new kingdom. And in our studies in the Old Testament so far, we've seen that God's design for an economy is an economy of neighborliness, loving one's neighbor. It's an economy which emphasizes the common good and ensures that nobody gets left out. From the various laws about the land, we can see that what is important is that everybody has and can keep a way of learning, earning a living. That could be some land or some other productive property. It could be a trade, a profession, or some other set of skills for which there's a need in society. Again, for this, the same group of people, we see that there's a system for interest-free loans. And this is available to help any of these people who got into some sort of financial trouble so that they could still continue earning their living and or avoid getting into a worse situation. For those that didn't have the means of earning a living or didn't have any family support, the important thing was to create some opportunity for work, first of all. In that agricultural setting, it was through the process of gleaning. Some efficiency and profit was sacrificed in order to create work for those who needed it. And finally, there was a system of taxes called tithing, which was used to support the religious functionaries, the Levites, and the very poor. Those were the foreigners and the widows and orphans who had no family support. So today, what I want us to do is to ask how any or all of the taxation or tithing system applies to us today. I'm deliberately using both of those words, taxes and tithes, because tithes were taxes and had been in existence in the ancient Near East for a long time before they became part of the, of the law um, at, at, at Mount Sinai. Under King Solomon, the temple tax was reintroduced, and then he introduced all sorts of other taxes to meet his own needs for building and, and whatever it was that, that he wanted to do. And that continued under his successors, um, the kings in both Israel and in Judah. In the New Testament Gospels, again, we read lots about taxes because there were stories and, and, and people who were tax collectors that we were meeting all the time. And it's clear from that that the Romans were imposing heavy taxes wherever they went. In the modern English-speaking world, tithes have become 
associated with churches because of that Old Testament connection. But in much of the rest of Europe, including Spain until recently, people were required to pay a church tax through the government tax system. As Benjamin Franklin famously commented once in a letter to a friend, in this world nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. In the early church, obviously, there were huge changes from what happened under God's old covenant. First of all, there was no temple because God's new people were his temple. There were no more priests or Levites because, again, all Christians were priests. Interestingly, there's no more talk about tithes except for some very critical comments that Jesus made about the ostentatious and legalistic tithing and giving of the scribes and the Pharisees. So today, what what do we say about supporting teachers and preachers? We don't know for sure how the apostles all fed themselves. It's very probable that they were given hospitality by others in the cities and the churches to which they went. Paul rather implies this in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, when he, while he himself is actually doing things differently. He says, We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. That's in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul worked as a tent maker and he says, quote, we did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. In the first century, there were many teachers, philosophers and preachers who traveled around the Roman world, and they were paid for teaching or literally entertaining people. The apostles and the early evangelists and teachers were probably given hospitality in the same way. More explicitly, Paul writes to Timothy, probably 20 years later. And he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. That means being held in high esteem and paid, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. By the time that Paul was writing this letter to Timothy, probably Timothy being in Ephesus at the time, the churches were being supported and served by elders who were known variously as bishops, priests, and deacons. They, in turn, were supported materially by the church congregations. The practice seems to follow the same principle of the Israelites supporting the priests and the Levites. Today, the same principle must surely apply. Paul's words to Timothy don't, however, imply that the church has to supply all the elders' needs. What is provided obviously has to depend upon the size of the congregation and the amount of time the teacher spends on teaching. Otherwise, the elder would be expected to work for his living. So that's supporting teachers and preachers. But what about looking after the poor in the church? As we've seen throughout the Old Testament, God keeps reminding his people that his, his great concern is for the really poor people. 
all the time he's talking about the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans, both in the law and later on through the prophets. In the New Testament, Jesus starts his earthly ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth by announcing that God had anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And sure enough, these were the people with whom he spent the next three years. Some of them had the security of families who would provide for them, but many of them did not. Throughout most of those three years, Jesus was followed by a group of 12 disciples. They were men who had previously been farmers, fishermen, tradesmen, and there was one tax collector. When Jesus called them to follow him, they had all just dropped what they were doing and had left their previous way of life and the security of their families and friends. Just before going on their last journey to Jerusalem with Jesus, they had witnessed a very wealthy young man refuse to follow Jesus because Jesus had told him he first had to sell all that he had and give to the poor. As the young man walks away, Peter turns to Jesus and says, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus turns to him and says, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What does this extraordinary statement mean? As we've been seeing in these studies, a Jewish man's security was totally tied to his land and his family. What Jesus is saying in reply to Peter is that if a man leaves all his family and land for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, without fail, in this life, he will receive a hundred times more family and land. In the age to come, he will also have the life of eternity. We don't have any record of what Peter may have said in reply, but I suspect that he and his fellow disciples were so shocked at such an extravagant statement that they didn't know what to say. In any case, Jesus was clearly on his way to Jerusalem. And frankly, they were more worried about what sort of reception they were going to receive when they got there. It would probably be about six to eight weeks before they would discover what Jesus had meant by that promise. It happened on the day of Pentecost and in the days and weeks to follow. You see, that was the birthday of a new family a new family made up of men and women, boys and girls, who were filled by God's Spirit and were children of God. The experience of Jesus' promise to Peter is described in the familiar passage in Acts 2 and, and in Acts 4. In Acts 4, this is, this is what uh, Luke says. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles 
apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There's no doubt that this was a very special situation. Pentecost means 50 days. The Feast of Pentecost was another name for the Feast of Weeks that we were talking about last time. Seven weeks after the beginning of the harvest, when everyone, and remember, everyone included sons and daughters, male and female servants, the Levites, foreigners, the widows and the orphans, everyone came to Jerusalem to feast on the first fruits of their harvests. Jerusalem, therefore, at this time was packed with people from all parts of Israel and from many places outside. Barnabas, for instance, had traveled from Crete. This was when the church was given birth by the Holy Spirit. And within a few days, there were several thousand new members of the family. And they stayed around in Jerusalem much longer than they normally would have done because they were so eager to hear the teaching of the apostles. And because it was a feast, there was probably quite a lot of food in Jerusalem at that time, but very unevenly distributed. And some people began to run out. That's when the different members of the family began to share. That's when people like Barnabas sold some land for money to buy more food. One thing that I'd like us to note is that Barnabas and the others who sold things for money brought that money to the apostles' feet. In a society that worked on the basis of patronage, Barnabas could very easily have given the money out to selected families who then would all have been in his debt. They would then have been obliged to go around telling everyone how wonderful Barnabas was in order to increase his honor and his reputation in the Christian community. But no, that was not the way that it worked. The money was brought to the apostles as the representatives of the community and then distributed by the community. It was the same principle as a town in the Old Testament times collecting the tithes on the third year to create a community store of food for the foreigners, widows, and orphans in their town. That's why, also in Servant and Revy, we've tried to do our giving to families in need as a church community. Those first few weeks in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost were very special. No question about it. At one point, the distribution of food to the most needy widows became so complicated that the community had to choose seven deacons to supervise the system and make sure that everybody was treated equally. One of those deacons was a man called Stephen. And Stephen was also a remarkable evangelist. And after a while, he was arrested, he was tried, and he was condemned to death by stoning. That event started a period of very severe persecution of the church. And it was then that the Christians were scattered back to their places of origin all over the Roman Empire and beyond. So when we come to our, our present day uh, situation, we have to ask ourselves, how much should I give to whom and by what mechanism? Paul was obviously a great apostle and a great evangelist and a great teacher. He was also a great relief fundraiser. And I think we can get some answers to those questions from him. During the reign of the Emperor Claudius, from about AD 41 to AD 54, there were a whole series of famines around in different parts of the, of the Roman Empire. Judea, it seems to have been particularly badly affected. And before Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, they were in Antioch, which is northern Syria. People 
had come from Jerusalem and told the Christians in Antioch about the famine. And in response, the Christians in Antioch made a collection of money, giving according to what they each had what they each had to help the brothers in Judea. And Barnabas and Paul were the ones chosen to get, carry the gifts to the elders in Jerusalem. The story is described for us in, in Acts chapter 11. Either the famine itself or the economic effects of the famine continued after the death of Claudius. And for seven or eight years after that first visit to Jerusalem with the money, we find Paul fundraising again in both Greece and in Asia Minor for these same poor Judean Christians. He writes to the church in Corinth in his, in his first letter. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set, a sum of, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will need to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go as well, they will accompany me. Well, a couple of years later, Paul is now in Philippi in Macedonia, and he's clearly got the Macedonians' commitment to help in this collection as well. And in his second letter to the church at Corinth, he writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God, also to us. Paul lives in an honor-shame society and is quite prepared to introduce competition into his fundraising. To the Corinthians, he continues, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul not only wants to compare the sincerity of the Macedonians' uh, love, sorry, the sincerity of the Corinthians' love with the earnestness of the Macedonians, he's also prepared to shame them by reminding them of the unparalleled generosity of Jesus on their behalf. He continues in that way at the beginning of chapter 9 of his second letter, where he says, there's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians telling them that since last year, you in Greece were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, um, not to say you, uh, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements, arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as a grudgingly given. 
Paul's language seems transparently manipulative to us. But particularly in that society and culture, actually he was only being kind by reminding them about what a huge shame it would be for them if they didn't give generously, first of all, according to what they had promised they would do, and then as a reflection of the affluence they were so proud of in their city of Corinth. Well, in addition to trying to save the Corinthians from a shameful experience, he also gives them three very clear reasons and guidelines for their giving. They should give according to their ability. Equity is about sharing each way over the course of time, and they should invest in generosity. So first, giving according to your means. I think it's very significant that neither Jesus nor anyone else recorded in the New Testament promotes tithing. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus was mostly concerned about the legalistic and ostentatious ways in which the scribes and the Pharisees did their tithing and their giving. Paul here is emphasizing giving according to what people have, not just in proportion to what they have. He he, he says here, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Forty years ago, there was a book written in the U.S. first by a man called Ron Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. In that book, he describes how he and his wife had adopted a practice that they called a graduated tithe. He argued that many people have much more money than they need for a reasonable, modest lifestyle. The more money that people have, the greater proportion should be available for giving away. So he and his wife calculated the amount of money that they would need for a reasonable but but modest lifestyle. They also worked out what they needed to save towards their children's college education. So they set aside the money that they needed for their taxes and saving for college. And with the rest, they calculated 10% on the amount that they needed for their living expenses. But then they added an extra 5% for every additional $1,000 that they had earned. So they would pay 10%, 15%, 20 25%, and so on, depending on the money amount of money that was in excess of what they needed. The details don't matter here at this point, and other people have worked out different ways of doing a graduated tithe. The important thing is that the, the mindset that is involved here is that whatever their income, they always had enough to meet their needs. But then in addition, they were able to give away much more. I want us to think much more about the issue of lifestyle and how much we spend on it in our, our, our next two studies, the last two studies that we'll be doing. What we can see here is that giving according to our means is not just setting aside a tithe, 10%, and then thinking that we've done our duty. That's a very legalistic way of of doing it. And that's the sort of thing that Jesus was criticizing. So we give according to our means. That's the first thing. Secondly, equality is about sharing both ways. Paul wanted his readers to think beyond the immediate situation of their lives. 
he wanted them to realize that while they in Corinth at that time were well off and the people in Jerusalem were poor, at some time in the future, the situation might be reversed and the Judean Christians would be giving to the Corinthians. That, said Paul, was what he considered equality. Equality was not everyone having the same all of the time, but always making sure that everybody had their basic needs met, that nobody was left hungry. Paul reminds his readers of what happened in the wilderness when God provided the manna for the Israelites to eat each day. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks back. Each morning, the Israelites got out of their houses and went outside and collected the manna from the ground. Somehow, it made no difference how much anybody actually collected. When they got home, everyone had just the right amount. No one had too little, and no one had any left over. God's idea of prosperity, about which he talked a lot in his covenantal promises, God's idea of prosperity is that everyone in a community has enough for all of their needs. Everyone in a community has enough for all of their needs. Prosperity is not defined by being able to enjoy more than you need. So, giving according to your means, equality about sharing both ways, and then thirdly, investing in generosity. In chapter 9 of, of Paul's second letter to Corinth, he continues, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, Having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Again, there are just three main points that I want to take from this, this short passage. The first, you reap what you sow. We all understand the meaning of those words. It's, it's a familiar concept that we, we talk about quite often. But I wonder how easily we could explain what Paul means by that expression for the Corinthian Christians. They're giving money to buy food for poor Judean Christians, whatever it is, a thousand, thousand miles away. What do the Corinthians actually reap from that gift? Sure, they will receive thanks and honor from the Judeans, but is is that all that Paul has in mind? I think not. I think this is what Jesus would call laying up treasure in heaven. Paul goes on in this chapter to say, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also, also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everybody else. Others will thank God for your obedience and generosity. You reap what you sow, you lay up treasures in heaven, and God is given thanks. Secondly, only give what you really want to give. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
This seems so very simple and obvious, but I think this is one of the main reasons that Jesus teaches in his Sermon on the Mount that when we give, we should give in secret so that only God knows what we have given. When others are watching, it's so easy to either feel pressured to give more, to impress them, or at least to give some sort of minimum amount so that we don't feel ashamed. No, God says, do it in secret and do it from your heart. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Honestly, today, we may not know what that reward is. But that, I think, is part of the reaping of what we have sowed. So, only give what you really want to give. And then thirdly, God will always provide for your needs and for giving even more. Paul says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Whenever we are asked to give something away, we, I'm sure, always wonder if we can really afford to do so. Will we be able to pay all the bills for the month or for the year? And what if such and such happens? And we don't have enough to meet our own needs in the future. Neither God nor anyone else can tell us how much we should give. Let me just say that again to make sure you you heard exactly what I'm saying. Neither God nor anyone else can tell us exactly how much we should give. We have to make up our own mind and give gladly from the heart. That's what Paul is saying here. But God guarantees that, quotes, he is able to bless you. He abundantly in all situations and at all times. And he gives us those guarantees for two reasons. First of all, we will always have all that we need, and secondly, so that we can abound in every good work. So let's just finish off with how Paul explains this a little bit more. And in verse 10 of chapter 9, he says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed. He will increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. In a way, you know, God is treating each one of us as kind of like a businessman. He says, listen, invest this in other people's lives and and see what you reap from that. And if you invest in people's lives and there's a good result, I know God says that I can trust you and therefore I'm going to give you more so that you can invest more in order to reap more in other people's lives. So if we give generously and invest in treasure in heaven, God will increase our supply of seed so that we can give and invest even more. So that's, that's all I, I want to say at this, at this moment. And we've, we've got, again, a, a little, and, and little time, but always shorter time than I would really love to have some discussion. Um, So Esther, please bring us all in. Um, And I think there are some some questions that we can talk about now. Um, And if not completely now, that I hope you'll uh, go away and think about a little bit more 
yourselves later. In the Old Testament, people were primarily responsible for their families, but they also contributed their tithes for a store of food for those who had no family. In the New Testament, they were still responsible for their families, but the responsibilities seemed to expand. Today, here are the questions. Who should Christians take responsibility for helping? And in what ways should that be done? How much should we be giving? Should we be doing it only through the local church? Should we be supporting relief agencies and welfare agencies? Should we just be paying our taxes? Or should we be giving gifts directly ourselves? These are the sorts of issues. To whom? How much? And by what sort of mechanism? That's, I'd really love to hear what, what ideas people have. So link us up, Esther, please. Good. So who's, who's going to kick us off on this? These are quite small, insignificant issues in our lives, I'm sure. Uh, where does one to, want to start? Juliet, kick us off. Kick us off. You always ask very difficult questions, Ian. I, 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 well, no, no apologies. Life is difficult. Let's let's face up to it and 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 and, and ask the right questions. Yeah, well, the first question I think is, it's it's an interesting one. It's a difficult one because there is um, so much need in the world as a whole. Um, it's sort of like where where do you start and how and how do you decide who to help? Um, we can't help everyone who needs help in the whole world. Um, and I guess if, if we tried to, to help lots of different people, maybe the help you could give would be so small to each place that um, I guess one option is thinking about, well, I can't help everyone, but choosing certain people or, or organisations or whatever to, to help through um, in a way that, that can be more impactful, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good question. When you start to think about all the needs in the world, um, it's like, where, where do you start really? Um, I think from my point of view, um, obviously the family, but the, the church family, I think is, is an important place to start. Um, and as as a church, we help a lot of people, um, organisations and individuals and um, missionary organisations and um, not, not necessarily all just Christian organisations, but refugees and and things like that. As a church, so obviously by by giving to the church, um, I'm helping to enable to give to those. Um, different areas. Julia, just a little practical question. Um, as you say, the ch- as as a church, we are actually giving to a number of different organisations. As, as you think about that, how how were those how were those organisations chosen? How did that happen? Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think some some of them have been chosen through um, people in within the church having contacts with those organisations. Um, so either people who are connected to the church directly working for them or um, having experience of them, um, and some like. Um, like the Puertas Abiertas that supports um, persecuted Christians. I don't, I don't know um, if anyone had any particular connection with them, but I guess we had a, have a, a sort of a burden for them living in a, in a country where, where we're not persecuted. Yeah. Um, 
there was definitely a need for that. But yes, I mean, obviously, again, as, as a church, there are so many causes and people we could support, but um, it probably focused on ones that we're more connected to. Right. Good. Thanks, Shubhya. Other contributions here? Other thoughts? That, um, the first question on who should Christian be responsible to give would, like Juliet said, the first thing would be um, the church you are plugged in, you know, the church that you are being fed and, you know, the church you are connected with. That is a good start and um, to support, of course, your pastor and the causes that the church embrace. But also, um, I believe, like Juliet was sharing, that the Lord does bring people in, in different seasons of our lives and uh, bring organization or missionaries or, I don't know, you know, just bring people in your life and give you a passion and a desire to help them. You know, um, one example was when we became missionaries and we were very young, Carlos and myself, we were in our early 20s. Our supporters, many of our supporters were missionaries themselves, you know, and that is, you know, that's really huge. You know, those were missionaries that were being supported and they share from what they had with us, you know, and for many, many years we were supported by missionaries and actually we is still being supported by a handful of missionaries themselves, you know, huh. and um, I think that, you know, throughout your life, God bring the people in, like Juliet said, organizations, and, um, and you pray, and the Lord will guide you to whom support, to whom to help, you know, sometimes it's your, you know, your extended family that goes through, you know, a period of difficulty, but I think that the Lord does show us, and the Lord does guide us, you know, in, in helping different people. We just need to be willing to receive and to listen and to be obedient to give. Thanks, Valeria. How, how about some of the things that I was saying about how much? Yeah. Do, do people have, have uh, comments on that? I, I, I see Marila's got some, uh, some comments on that. Adri, Adri wanted to say something. Oh, Adri, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> up, 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 up to the microphone. We're discussing about the tithe, about the 10%. Uh, because uh, for me, since I met Jesus, it's has around 10 years ago, for me, it's mandatory to give the 10% uh, for the temple. Uh, the 10% of, of, of the money I receive, it's for the temple. I mean, for the church, as, as Valeria was saying, for the church I'm connected with. Uh, and the church is going to invest this money in different mm. ways that they have to invest it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think different. No. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking. Let, let, let Adri finish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, so for example, in, in, in my church in Colombia, um, they distribute this 10% of the people in a foundation that they have for social services. They also pay the salary of the pastors and the members of the, the administrators of the church, the diaconos, the deacons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the deacons and, well, the people who works in church. Uh, so I think that is the church who needs to distribute this money uh, according to the needs of the church and according to the ser services that they provide to other organizations, as Judith was saying. So as individual, I think that for me it's mandatory the ten percent, and I can for the temple, and I can also give more according to my possibilities, as you were saying, and I think that, um, and I think that it's according of what I am sensitive to, you know. Sometimes I mean, uh, Mariela can be sensitive for some kind of organizations, for example, children organizations, but I like maybe more. I don't know, helping missionary organizations or something different uh, with a different vision. So it depends of what you have in your heart and God, God gives different uh, feelings, you know, different passions. So um, the 10% for me is mandatory plus, plus um, 
you know, other, um, yeah, other, um, yeah, other, other amount of money, the mm -hmm. additional that I can give for other needs. Thank, thanks, Audrey. That's great. You're giving me the words. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, Marila. For me, it's different. Like, I think uh, not giving to the church all, but distributing because, like, who is the temple also, not only the church. And sometimes church can do wrong things. A lot of the churches do do if they receive too much money maybe they don't know what what to do but but also is yeah you can trust and give in the church a certain amount and if you're attending a church you should give something because you are supporting but i wouldn't give the 10 percent just to the church maybe i have other vision for other people and i say well but it's, this is church but the church is big right it's not only a two, four or six walls, and uh, it's more global. Yes, the church can can help global, but me too. I have the same power. Why not? And maybe the minimum yeah should be ten percent. But at the same time, it's like God says, like nobody should know how much you give. But it's like two different things. Like one, like mandatory, a good habit, and actually. In finance, if you are giving charity and if you are giving money, you will, it's like a law, you will receive. Yeah, this is like what also a lot of financial set like give. It makes you feel also good. It's also, it's a, it's a universal law. If you give, mm -hmm. it's, you are going to attract also. Of course, you have to give with the good. Um, good uh, how you say good spirit yeah but but it's uh, tr also trusting that when you give it's uh, it's even nicer and that's why it's más bien aventurado dar que recibir it's nicer to give than to receive right yeah because you gain only not only money but you gain something else good good thank you marila uh, other comments, Liz, Angie. Go ahead, Angie. Oh, she's mute, so I'll start. <laughs> no, go, Angie. If you want to talk, it's okay. I'll close this. Yeah, think, thinking of amounts, like I think that in the New Testament, like it's pretty clear that ten percent is not a law. Ten percent would be a starting point. Not that the New Testament says that explicitly, but that's how I've been. I've lived my life that um, the idea of 10%, the idea of setting aside that is just a place to start. And I'm from, maybe people don't, I'm from a really um, humble family. And like, I just, I've always thought, oh Lord, if you just gave me more money, like then I could give it away. <laughs> like I, I really like giving things and money and time away. Um, it's really a, a joy. Um, for me so like as I think of these questions I don't want to talk too long but I love this theme um, because I think it's really important it's a way that by giving away wealth which for many people in in this world it's kind of um, like shackles it can be something that really holds us back so by giving things away or giving money away responsibly not being a foolish person but it shows I'm telling my money that it's not my Lord. <laughs> um, so that for me, that's been um, a part of my life as far as giving and thinking of ways that should be done. I do all those things. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, deciding on where and how much to give is definitely related in my experience to my relationship with God. And as I'm having this growing relationship with God, as I'm abiding in him and trying to listen to his voice, um, as far as where I should invest, uh, my money in, in whether it's for people that have needs, or if I'm thinking like in a strategic way of thinking of like, where's God at work in a, in like a missionary type thing. Yeah, just trying to ask the Lord for guidance on that. Thanks, Angie. We all, we all know your generous heart. 
You shouldn't know that, though. It's a secret. <laughs> you need <in> the Lord. <laughs> Not a well-kept secret, Angie. <laughs> Liz, did you have something to say? Of course. Oh. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I, I agree with Angie. Um, I, it's, uh, yeah, I think, like, absolutely um, – giving away your money is 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 that it's telling your money that you're not my god and it's and it's trusting in in god as well um to provide for your needs um um i think it's crucial what you said ian about that that prosperity is means that no one goes without so prosperity isn't about having a fancy house or a uh, I don't know, uh, another flat in the beach or a Porsche. <laughs> but prosperity is about um, making sure that everybody has enough to live on, um, to eat and and everything. And I think that um, that's where you're right in saying that the church um, can make sure that that happens. I like the idea that you give the money to the church and then they distribute it among um people and and where the needs lie that we may not be aware of but i think that not it, it's not just um within the church because it's like maybe i know of people who are maybe a bit disconnected with the church at the moment who are going through tough times and maybe they don't want to say that because of pride and you know but then you, you know about it so you can do something about it and help them so I don't think the answer is, oh, I'm going to give everything to the church and they'll distribute it because then may, the elders or deacons or whatever <laughs> may not know about all of the needs. So it's our responsibility and um, the sensitivity that we have to hearing God's voice for what we should do with our money. Um, and yeah, and it, it is definitely better to, um, much nicer to give than to receive, but like, I think in this crisis, in this pandemic, sometimes we're being humbled to to have to receive, and that's that 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 for me personally is much harder than giving. So, Liz, thank you, thank yeah. you, Carlos. Um, we're gonna we're gonna give Esther the last word, but come on. Okay, uh, just quickly, uh, I think one one thing for me is nowadays is. We're not making it simple for people to understand what what gives your giving your tithes and, and offerings and should be done and and we with the desire to make it easy we we even have professionals that come to church and kind of will look around and offer the church a service to look what ministries you need to invest, where you should send your money, and it gets complicated. And we think uh, it's complicated when it's not. But I think the responsibility for each individual needs to be really taken seriously. And in the your relationship with God, the, the study of where the needs are to – you don't need to look uh, – too much to find where needs are. It can be your neighbor, can be uh, helping him. Uh, your neighbor one day can be maybe a time or a money that you help him. It will bring uh, a heart full of thanks to God. And, and, and they will know that you do that, not because they need only, it's because you are being obedient to God and you're looking for opportunities to invest, but also not uh, having a, a mindset that thinks about investment like the world does. You know, that we, when a lot of times you hear from people, you know, I want to see the return of my investment and you might not. And you have to be okay with that because you're not invest for the things here. Mm-hmm. It's in treasures in, in heaven. Mm-hmm. And we are confused with that. Oh, I was giving to that ministry, but it, I didn't see anything. So I stopped. Well, sometimes you won't see it. Be faithful and and do your homework and ask the church. If you give to the church, ask the pastor, say, how do we decide this? Like you asked, how do we decide who to give? 
How can we pray for wise decisions in what the church participates or contributes? And then how can I, as an individual, can um, not manage the, the money, but uh, how can I uh, be uh, in sync with God in what he, uh, the situation or the moment uh, uh, will, will bring and is asking me to do? You know, I always uh, have that. And sometimes I, like, I, I wanted to give more. And, and when I got saved, I thought, well, missionaries, this is a cool thing. I'm going to make a lot of money. And I don't want missionaries to be asking for money anymore. I'm going to give. And if I can, I will pay a salary to him. So he doesn't have to go around churches asking for money. And then here, <laughs> here am I, you know, <laughs> in, in a different situation. But that's what I want. And I want, it's better to give. But, you know, when you're on the receiving side, it's hum- humbling. And it's, it's a blessing, too. When, you know, when I can give, I'm like, hey, let me find someone or something to give to, you know, and it's exciting. But we have to do our homework and, and pray and participate in the decision of where to put the money and who to give, when to give, and how much, uh, according to each individual situation. Mm. Any other final thoughts? Little Lisa, Esther? Well, I was just thinking about what Carlos was saying, but things are more complicated these days. And, and, and I think the other thing that we have to be aware of that as to the complications, the biblical world was much smaller. People didn't travel around the world. Uh, they knew their, their neighbors in a way that we necessarily don't necessarily know that. And as Juliette said, the, the needs are huge. Um, and then, he, and we know so much more about the needs all over the world these days. Um, and for some of us who've moved from country to country, our world is also, you know, huge. And it's uh, it's uh, it, it's it's much more complicated than it might have been if I lived in a little village in biblical times and I knew my neighbors and and, and uh, so forth. So yeah. yeah. Just, that's my yes. final thought. Esther. <laughs> Esther? Yeah, I was just putting on my microphone. Um, yeah, sometimes we tend to 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 put uh, the money in a place that there is not his place. And learning that money is just a way to to fulfill the bellies of the people or to fulfill the, the dreams of our people. It's, for me, it's learning that this away is not um, something that you have to keep. You can be awake to, like, it's moving all the time. It, it helped me. helped me a lot to think that it's something that God has given to us, just to give it to other people, not to keep it up. Or wave or see, private sea just for us. And, and understanding that the needs that we need, we, we have, it is the same needs that the other people have, and and money is yes, a way, no, not a safety thing that I have to keep just in case, just in case something that is something that um, other people tell us that we have to do or to live like that, but Jesus was so clear about that. And we have to uh, rethink all the time and, mm. and make sure that we are listening to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, what is saying to us, because maybe we are just focused on what I have, how much money I have in my account, that I don't listen to the Spirit and maybe He's saying, like, give it 20 euros to that person or 100. And I don't listen because I'm thinking how to spend that money. And yeah, I was more thinking on that. Thank you, Esther. Okay, listen, really, really useful and helpful ideas from everybody. Um, As I say, next the next couple of sessions, I want us to really focus around issues of lifestyle. What it means to be prosperous. What does it mean to be happy, content? Mm -hmm. So. 
let's just close with a with a short prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, first of all, we thank you that we are all here together because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for us, so that we who were poor as we cannot imagine might become rich and we're rich because we're part of this new family that you've created and because we're part of that family we can experience security we can experience love we can experience generosity and we can experience the joy of giving and sharing and Father, I thank you for, for today's discussion and pray that we, we may all be able to go on thinking about this and digesting these ideas and that you will help us, each one, to be clear about the decisions that we should be making in our lives about the things that you have given us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Gracias por escucharnos. Te invitamos a visitar nuestra web c29granada.es y a conectar con nosotros en nuestras redes sociales arroba c29granada.